my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. You pulled off the road to a little tiny silver trailer, and there was someone standing there with a machine gun slung over his back. Guns were actually allowed at Burning Man. And the other guy was wrapped in a white sheet holding a plastic pink flamingo. You couldn't see Black Rock City because you actually needed to drive 15 miles towards a mountain peak. And you're like, I drive how far? and then turn right two miles, and then this little city appeared in front of you. It felt like you're on another planet. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing, where we explore that special mix of analytics and creativity that's the foundation of so many great business, marketing, and cultural successes. Today, we're going to the frontiers with a real pioneer, the CEO of Burning Man, Marion Goodell. She came from a background that may surprise you, thinking about Burning Man, Republican, Irish Catholic, conservative. Her sister's godfather was the late Supreme Court Justice Scalia, and her dad was a big fan of Ayn Rand. 
She moved around a lot as a kid, but finished high school in a small town in Ohio where her graduating class only had 180 students in it. She was the only one in her graduating class to go to an all-women's college. She was there in the formative years of Burning Man and can tell us how this culture developed and can discuss its impact on the greater world. She has an open mind, a big heart, and an unlimited imagination, and she's a friend. Marion, welcome. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. So we're going to get started with you in 60 seconds. Ready? Yep. Do you prefer desert or ocean? Mm, ocean. Early rise or a night owl? Night owl. Coffee or tea? Tea. San Francisco or Black Rock City? Ooh, Thai. Ohio or Nevada? Ohio. Ketchup or mustard? Mustard. Pizza or tacos? Tacos. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Cats or dogs? Cats. Smartest person you know? Bob Pittman. Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) We'll we'll give you a pass on that one. First job? Kmart. Doing what? Checkout, cashier. Favorite book? When I was a child, Paddle to the Sea. Last vacation? I don't know what that is. (laughs) Secret talent? I make a really, really mean pumpkin pie. First concert? I saw Journey. Is there a food you will never eat? I can't stand turnips and cilantro. Title of your memoir, what would it be? (laughs) Oh, look where I woke up and found myself. (laughs) Who would play you in a movie? Annette Bening. One place you'd like to visit that you haven't been? Mm, Bali. What did you want to be when you were growing up? I wanted to be a teacher. What topic can you talk about forever? Cats. If you have one superpower, what would it be? To see the future. Okay, let's start with a little Burning Man. I went for the first time in 2004, and there were still plenty of people in the world who had never heard of Burning Man then. Of those who did know it, the culture seemed very fringe, a little crazy. So today, let's fast forward, there's almost universal recognition of the culture, and it seems much more a part of the mainstream. What happened in those 15 years? Culture in the world certainly changed. Media got a hold of Burning Man. People were looking for ways to connect. And Burning Man really strips everything away and gives people an opportunity to connect. You know, that's the thing that changed Burning Man in 1996 was Wired Magazine and the tech community. That culture was building tools. And to keep being inspired, Burning Man was an environment that was innovative and gave them the opportunity to think in a really broad way. And then it's been a second generation of that. We've watched cycles of the popularity of Burning Man. It sort of slipped back and became quiet again. And then there was a resurgence for the same reasons. For the few people who are listening who don't know this, would you give us the quick origin story? Well, Burning Man started on a beach in San Francisco in 1986. Larry Harvey and his friend Jerry James built about an eight-foot-tall wooden man and burned it on the summer solstice. It was just an evening thing until 1990 when too many people showed up on the beach and then they moved it to the Black Rock Desert over Labor Day weekend and that's where it stayed. And originally it was about three days and now it is eight nights in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada. So how did they find this location outside of Gerlach? There are a number of people that point to Larry, but he credits Miss P and John Law and some others as having been to the area for different artistic reasons. And so when the law enforcement showed up in 1990 and they took the Burning Man away, they actually didn't burn it on the beach in 1990. The different groups and friends got together and said, listen, there's this thing called the Black Rock Desert. And they went and did a scouting trip up there. They put the man in the back of a rider truck and they drove it up there on a Friday afternoon. 
that's how the town of Gerlach kind of got on the map, is this funky little cute quirky town is now the home to the Burning Man. As we were researching you for this episode, I read that Larry, the late Larry Harvey, the founder of Burning Man, just wrote the Ten Principles in 2004. Mm-hmm. I was actually surprised. I never realized it had been that long before he committed them to writing. And the ten are, will you give them to us? I can give them to you. They are leaving no trace, radical self-reliance, radical inclusion, decommodification, communal effort, civic responsibility, participation, gifting, radical self-expression, and immediacy. So had those been talked about before, or did that just sort of pop into Larry's head in 2004? The story of the Ten Principles is really one of my favorite stories, because people do think that we started with this sort of dictum of ideas and that we went about sort of putting them in place, and it was just the opposite. The activities and the culture and the community and the engagement that was happening at Burning Man was happening very organically. And one of the things that Larry, as a philosopher and a writer and a great thinker, really would do with the other organizers is think about, well, what had gone right this year and what went wrong? For instance, gifting. In 1997, people had barter bars. And he said, this is not about bartering because bartering was transactional. We started talking internally about gifting and putting gifting forward. In early 2000s, as the regional network of leaders were starting to grow, we realized that they really were asking for reminders about why they weren't allowed to sell anything at their events. Why did we not sell burgers? Why did we not sell water? And so we went through an internal process of sort of asking ourselves, reminding ourselves, well, why has this worked and how do we tell the rest of the world? I had an email list of these various leaders from around the world, and I asked Larry to watch the conversations and what the questions were. And I would periodically beg him to answer a question that we were thinking through. And he finally got tired of answering these questions. And he said, I'm going to write something. And he went away for vacation in Mazatlan. And he came back with these nine points. These were these principles. And he presented them to the group of us. And we kind of chuckled because it brilliantly brought together the things we'd all been thinking about, what we really had talked about separately, but not as a group. And then we teased him. We said, there's nine. Why are there nine? And he looked at us stunned. And we said, shouldn't there be 10? And he went home and he came back and he said, well, actually, there was one more that he'd been thinking about. And the last one was immediacy. And that was his favorite. And so we ended up with 10 principles that were really a reflection of what we were doing. And they were descriptive, but not prescriptive. Any pushback when Larry came out with these 10 Was there an element of Burning Man that says, oh, my God, not those 10? Well, so we were really afraid of them for that reason. We didn't want them to be seen as 10 commandments or 10 rules. So the first thing we did was actually publish them for the regional network. We put them out on an email list. They were so well received that we actually put them in a paper newsletter. We actually used to send a newsletter out every year. People began to discuss them. And we knew we were on to something if we told the story about them being descriptive and not prescriptive. So it's something to think about and reflect and embody, but they're not commanded. There's no police. It grew on everybody. And then they started imagining, well, how can I participate? And what does this mean for me? So more of a prism than commandments. Right. And we really haven't gotten pushback from the 10 principles ever, ever. I still remember Burning Man being referred to as an experiment and temporary community. 
Is that still used today, and is it still relevant? At that time, that's what we called it. It was an experiment in temporary community. What was a temporary community on the desert floor is not a temporary community anymore. It's really a global, active, engaged community. Year-round. It's year-round. I want to come back and discuss how these principles and this view can be used in general society today and even in business. But first, I want to dig into you. At the top, I mentioned your family that was definitely business-focused and conservative. I think your dad was sort of an old-style industrialist. Mm -hmm. Your mom was from New Orleans, and you've described her as loving. Mm -hmm. You were born in the early 60s, grew up in the 60s and 70s. Can you paint a little picture of that time? My uncle was a protester arrested in D.C. and went to Woodstock. So I absolutely remember the energy around the summer of love, the coming of age. He was a big pot smoker. He lived in a commune. This was your... This is my dad's brother. Your dad's brother. My dad's brother. Wow, the yin and yang. Exactly. That's why I remember it. My father was conservative. We had Sunday breakfast together. We went to church. And when I would visit my uncle at Yale, there were psychedelic colors on the wall. And there was a big mattress where everybody's hanging out, smoking pot, although they weren't allowed around us, obviously. And my mother pressed flowers. My uncle had an influence on her. Also, all my aunts and uncles, though some have married, never had children. So I had sort of freestyle relatives, but a conservative father, at least. I think my mother was a little bit more of a hippie, for sure. So did your dad reject that, or was he open-minded? He was pretty open-minded. My uncle was sort of like the black sheep of the family, but loved the family. Catholic, very embracing, even of the differences. We were talking about the 10 principles of Burning Man. Did your family have their version of the 10 principles? (laughs) We certainly did. I was reminded recently by one of my sisters that my father was very into manners, If you caught your sister having bad manners at the table, if you had your elbows on the table, if you talked with your mouth full, and you called your sister on it, you could get five cents or 10 cents. My father was a capitalist with the rules at the dinner table. You were the oldest of four sisters, and your dad was a businessman. So did that preordain you to be a leader? I don't think I was certain I would be a leader really until I came out of Goucher. My senior year at Goucher, I ran for student body treasurer and won. That gave me the bug for what was possible with leadership, how to bring your ideas to the surface. Right after college, I moved to Boston and worked in advertising and knew that I was on a search to find where I could be a leader. Burning Man didn't really exist, and it wasn't a job I applied for. You go to this all-women's college Mm -hmm. in Baltimore. Why there? And why were you so different from the other kids leaving school? Well, my mother went to Wellesley, and her sister went to Wellesley, and my father's sister went to Wellesley, and I'm the oldest of four women. So I don't remember actually even considering a co-ed school. It was such an important storyline in my family. And certainly nobody in Bryan, Ohio, went to a woman's college. Wellesley, Sweetbriar, Goucher, they were the schools that I considered. Goucher College was just a really great place to flourish. It was like having sisters. I grew up with sisters, and I had more sisters. When you started college, what did you intend to be? When you left college, what did you intend to be? I just knew that the idea of getting married and having children as being the phase for the next five to 10 years was not the phase that I was looking for. I was actually really looking for college to give me some tools to be on a journey. I was a year into Goucher, and I realized that if I struggled too hard to find exactly what I wanted, 
I would miss the opportunity of being in college. So I sought out creative writing in English. I loved to read. I loved to write. As it has turned out, those were foundational. Being a good communicator was often why I was hired with Burning Man and really with other employment I had. You go to Boston, briefly, then San Francisco. What was the allure of San Fran, and why better than the East Coast? You know, one winter I got tired of digging my car out of the snow in Boston, and I went to visit a friend who was living in the hate. The lifestyle of living in California was so much more about finding yourself, and it wasn't who you are as to where you worked and where you went to college, which I found was very much true in Boston. I knew it was a place where I could really explore who I am. So you worked in sales and PR out there, and then you quit and went to the San Francisco Academy of Art, where you got your MFA. What took you on that path? Because that's not sales and PR. I did really well in the sales end of things. I was selling a product actually back to the government. It was information-based, and it was on CD-ROM, and I loved the work. But I got a really great bonus check one day, and I realized I didn't even know what to do with the money, and I didn't feel super inspired. I sort of was having physical experiences I didn't quite understand, and I went to a doctor who told me she thought I was depressed. I was like, I'm not depressed. I'm doing great. And when I really reflected on it, I realized I wasn't inspired. At that time, all my sisters were in graduate school, and I was like the black sheep not in graduate school. And I loved photography. I loved storytelling and pulled the plug on the great job and went back for master's in fine art with an emphasis in photography. And no regrets. None. So That's where I saw photos of Burning Man. Well, that's what I was going to get into. <laughs> I read that it was another student's photo mm-hmm. that sent you on the Burning Man path. It was such a funny story. We were in a color class looking at these gorgeous pictures of a sunset of this large piece of artwork. I remember asking and whispering about the location and the teacher shushing me and another guy and telling us that this was not about the subject. It was the quality of the photos. And afterwards, we kind of chased her out of the room, and she was insistent that you needed to know the right phone number, and she just couldn't remember it, sort of on and on. And it took me another year to chase it down. I was struck by the desert and the art, just one art piece. There wasn't the hundreds of art pieces. There was just the man, and it looked so solitary and gorgeous and beautiful. And I wanted to go both to the event But I also wanted to go to the desert. You went to Burning Man for the first time in 1995. Mm -hmm. You show up and it is what? It's mind-boggling. You pulled off onto the road to a little tiny silver trailer and there was someone standing there with a machine gun (laughs) slung over his back. And it was a real machine gun, but that was also his persona. With real bullets? With real bullets, I suppose, because they were all into guns in those days. Guns were actually allowed at Burning Man. They would go off into a shooting range in the afternoon, shooting stuffed animals tied to trees. And the other guy was wrapped in a white sheet holding a plastic pink flamingo. You couldn't see Black Rock City because you actually needed to drive 15 miles towards a mountain peak. The best part of it really was you couldn't see where you were going. You're like, I drive how far? and then turn right two miles, and then the little city appeared in front of you. And so that part is gone because for safety, we're closer to the land. But the idea that you would drive and drive and drive kind of timidly without any roads, without any fences, and then this little village of people would appear, 
was pretty otherworldly. It felt like you're on another planet. You met the organizers in 96. In 97, you quit your job, used your savings, and dove in. You, Larry Harvey, and four others founded the organization that later became BlackRock City LLC, Burning Man's managing organization. You were originally the head of business and communications, and you took Burning Man into the Internet. You started the newsletter, Jack Rabbit Speaks, which is still with us today. Tell me a little bit about how you made that jump, because this is like a real big life change for you. I had a job I really liked for a small firm that made sales software. I was with a really small team doing the internet work. Two programmers, two designers. I was the person doing the writing and the editing. I sort of created a project management position for myself. It was super fun. It was the very beginning of those kinds of things. But I'd gone to Burning Man and came back from Burning Man. And when I started the relationship with Larry and began to build the Jackrabbit Speaks, I was running it through the servers at work because the internet was strong at work until one day one of the programmers said to me, I know what you're doing. You're doing this thing and it's going out to 15,000 people through our servers and you can't do that anymore. And I remember thinking, okay, I need to figure out whether what I'm doing on the side is affecting what I'm doing for my work. And then I started coming to work later. I would be at the office till 10 working on Burning Man on the side. And so I would come in a little later and my boss said, no, your work hours aren't working. And I was put on report. Put on report's a bad thing, I suppose. She gave me a pink slip. She said, your hours need to change. I thought about what that would mean. That meant not doing Burning Man. And so I had to make that change and make Burning Man the priority and live off my savings and leave my job and make it work. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be. To be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. 
More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go, like, how do I detach from my from this idea of, what do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Marion Goodell. I want to hit Burning Man as a giant tribe concept. Mm-hmm. Usually if I hear somebody talking about Burning Man, I go to Burning Man. Oh, great. And we have this instant bond. Mm-hmm. What is this giant tribe about? And what is that instant acceptance of fellow burners? Originally, it very much meant it was a shared experience of being in the desert, that you had gone through the trials and tribulations of the weather, of building a camp, of getting there. The experience has gone beyond that now because there are many people around the world that feel like they've experienced Burning Man at the Israel burn, at South Africa, in Japan, in Argentina. And so that thread now is that we know we've been through an environment that is supportive of decommodification, that we're encouraging leave no trace, that there are no trash cans, that communal effort and radical self-reliance are all in play. So the feeling of Burning Man is affiliating yourself with a way of life, a perspective, a kindness towards others, a generosity that comes from a Burning Man experience, not just in Black Rock City, but in other places of the world. And you can look at the person a little more safely, comfortably, trusting, because you've had a similar shared experience. Let's talk about how it's so broad. Outside of Burning Man, I think we define ourselves as my liberal, my conservative, what's the kind of job, where do I live? But at Burning Man, you have all these people of all ages, radically different economic backgrounds, political views. How can it be so broad? And society in general today seems to be getting more and more polarized and segmented. That's the beauty of going to Burning Man and being in a Burning Man environment. The organization in particular makes it very clear that we don't want to talk about politics and we don't want people to feel divided by their religion, who they are, 
the goal is really to bring people together and connect and collaborate and do things greater than ourselves. People are often surprised. In fact, they're most surprised when conservatives are at Burning Man. It's really quite rewarding to see people of different political backgrounds finding that they have something magical in common, like building an art car together or taking an adventure on the playa. They may not even realize what their politics are. And at this day and age, we need more bridges. We need more bridges to understand each other. How does Burning Man minimize that polarization among the burners? Because in the outside world, the very people that are there would be polarized. But inside Burning Man... Is it because everybody wears clothes that don't identify them as a job or what they do? Is it where they came from? What structurally helps that? Well, I think there's a lot of different parts of what Burning Man is that sets us up for that. The way in which we're asking for communal effort and civic responsibility, that we're also balancing it with radical self-reliance and radical self-expression. The intention is not about the individual and the individual's beliefs, but it's more about what we're bringing to it together. Under those conditions, your radicalized opinions on things matter towards the dialogue about being there and present, but don't really matter related to the output. So for instance, the best way to express really different opinions would be through art. You can also express it through a theme camp. Our purpose is to bring people together. Our purpose is to create opportunity for people to learn from each other and to collaborate on large endeavors. So we are definitely behind the scenes learning from activities and responses. We do sort of tweak how we manage theme camps, of how we manage our communications, of how we set the expectations for the community. It's not anarchy. We're all doing it together. I love walking the playa with people for the first time. The light shows on, all these mutant vehicles going around, and you can see their eyes wide open. I think it challenges their view of what they know and what they believe and what's possible. For anybody in the creative side of the business, it's a great way to open your mind creatively to go, wow, who are these people? Where did they get that idea? How did they come up with that? How did they execute it? Yeah, How my, did they get the money to dad, do that? How did the they get engineer, the time? Exactly. The conservative engineer came and looked at Burning Man, and that's all he wanted to do, Bob. He wanted to go to the base of the big structures and figure out how did they do it. <laughs> the politics didn't matter. And in fact, he was really worried that he would see things that he didn't want to see. He didn't even see anything that he was afraid of. He only saw the imagination and the ingenuity that really sparked his imagination. The first time I went, it was all fire. Hula hoops on fire. They were mm -hmm. tossing and dancing with fire. And now it's all electric wires. Mm -hmm. What was that transition? And was that the law that we had to get rid of fire? Or was it just an evolution? We saw glow sticks for a while. The glow sticks went away and that moved on to EL wire. Right. And I think that that's more accessible for people. I think working with fire is a more of an art form. It does take some work and some lessons with safety. We do have a little less burning of things in general. And that's really logistics and safety. It takes a lot of work to create a safe perimeter. And so we are seeing fewer large pieces being burned. Talk a little bit about the regional burns. How did that come about? And how do they compare to Burning Man at Black Rock City? Well, I've been to very few of them, actually. I've been to the one in New Zealand, which at the time had about 400 people. I found it just as magical. 
It had all of the qualities of making eye contact with someone and smiling. It had serendipity. It actually had a pond, so it wasn't a desert. They had performance. There was a group in bathing suits and bathing caps that were marching down to the pond with great fanfare. The regional events are, I think, very important for people to have access to the experience of the culture. We can't really have more than 80,000 people in Black Rock City. The burners that have been to Black Rock City and they go to Africa Burn and have been going to Black Rock City for a while say it reminds them of the old days. That's no, funny. Smaller, more intimate. But the energy is the same. It's very creative and very self-expressive. So in 1998, Burning Man was profitable for the first time. What was the business decisions that put Burning Man into the black? Well, the first one was to raise the ticket prices. <laughs> what were the ticket prices originally? They were $25, $35, and then at the gate, I think they might have been 40 and then in 1997, I think the gate price was $65. That was a really important year between 97 and 98, because as you heard, that's when I left my job, and I wasn't the only one. The workload for the six of us was such that we really couldn't do other work. And that was when it was more important to have not just $20,000 left at the end of the year to pay Larry's bills, but the rest of us that needed to help us survive. The only way to do it is increase the population and to raise the ticket prices. This is a big transformation of Marion. What lessons does this have for others? What does it say about a life mission? One of the things I think it was important for me was taking the things that I had done up to that point and I merged them into that opportunity. So through my 20s, which is you know a time when people are always trying to figure out what they want to do, I was on a journey but I kind of wasn't afraid. I worked as a bank teller. I worked in advertising. I actually worked in a law firm. And when Burning Man came along in my early to mid-30s, those are the things I took on. I took on supporting the legal. I knew banking and finance, the communications work. For me, the transformation is listening to what it is you're able to do or what you want to do when it comes in front of you. Knowing enough about yourself. Say to yes instead of say no. Say yes instead of no. I took on the internet and the website for Burning Man. But before that, I didn't know it existed. What was the web four years before that? Not much. Not much. When you went for the first time in 1995, there were 4,000 attendees. When I went for the first time nine years later, it was up to 30,000. Today, it's 80,000. When I went in 2004, many people said, it's over. <laughs> it's ruined. It's so commercial now. And every year I hear people say that. What's that about? What are they really saying? You know, it's such a cherished experience for so many people. They are afraid that it's going to deteriorate when more people come. They're protecting it. But it does keep getting better and more imagination and creativity does come to it. I think 2011 was the first year that Burning Man sold out in advance. Since then, the man has gotten so strong that you've had to use lotteries and other techniques to allocate tickets. What was that tipping point? That was the government. They started feeling uncomfortable about our growth and their capacity to manage and observe our growth in a way that made them feel like it was being done safely. That was the end game on that. You know, in the long run, it was for the best. It is better for people to come prepared and to think of it far enough in advance. The numbers of people that were deciding to come at the last minute, they were definitely in the thousands. Now that we're at 80,000 people, we don't even want 8,000 people deciding at the last minute. Right. But the government was the initial halt. How do you deal with the government? This is public land. 
I know there's some people in government who think it's great, and some people think it's not so great. Got a minute to talk about that? The government is the hardest work, for sure. Really, it's educating the government. We see changes certainly in politics, but we don't see quite the same changes at the same rate in the administrative side. But when we do, it is really a journey to educate them that the community is one that's very peaceable, very organized, and has a very deliberate cultural intention. That's the work that I'm still the most involved in, technology, communications. Those are delegated to other people at this point, but I'm very involved in the day-to-day and week-to-week strategy around government relations. Frankly, it's very important that we have good relations with everybody from the local Native Americans to Reno City Councilmen to the governor, state elected officials, and then the federal government, BLM, Department of the Interior. And that's a lot of people with differing priorities. You know, Burning Man, on the surface of an administrator in the government, looks like it's just a big party in the desert. To have the conversation about it being a global culture and, frankly, changing tourism in northern Nevada, that takes more time. 2011 was also the year you and Larry and the other founders began the steps to turn the LLC into a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. I remember spending some time with you and Larry and some of the others during that time, and it appeared you were collecting thoughts from everybody you touched and sort of getting these different opinions and information to help you make the move. What did you want to accomplish with that move from an LLC to a nonprofit? Well, the future of the entities and the culture were not going to flourish under the framework of a limited liability corporation. The structure doesn't allow it to go on beyond the lives of the owners. Though we were functioning more as a C-Corp and we weren't taking any shares, we really needed the structure that could then go beyond the individuals. And so that was really the driving force behind it. We were collecting data because it's really somewhat unheard of that you take an LLC and turn it into a nonprofit. Exactly. The way in which it changed the decision-making processes was very important to me. I certainly, as you know, came from a fairly capitalist background. We would make the decisions and we would act on them. The nonprofit structure brought an element of public oversight. And so I was kind of resistant in the beginning because I just didn't want to take away our autonomy. So we spent a lot of time asking, and ultimately, we found out we could run a nonprofit profitably. All of this is built on protecting that culture. I've never seen an organization so obsessive about the culture. What advice would you give for other executives on managing a product or a company culture that you've learned from Burning Man? I don't think that it's easy to translate Burning Man into being a product, But what I can say that's been successful for us is our intention and the journey of where we were going has a cultural path. Looking at what the end game is as it applies to what the culture is and actually understanding in the case of a product, it would be the customer. And in the case of us, it's just our community and the culture. If I was advising a product, understand not what your market is, but what your culture is and what your output is and whether there's a culture around that output and how to mobilize that culture and that community to get something done, something that's productive. Larry Harvey, founder, cultural guru, as well as the philosopher, passed away in 2018, actually at a young age of 70. I know it was very hard for you personally, but as an organization, how has Burning Man coped with this loss? Well, the first thing we did was grieve. 
We spent most of 2018 doing that. That was actually in the form of a number of celebrations. When you have a loss like that so quickly, my goal was to allow all of the opportunities for the organization and the community and the friends to gather around a conversation around Larry and to celebrate him and to talk about him and tell stories. And by the end of 2018, I think that the retelling of the stories really sort of sealed in a lot of our minds how important and powerful the story is of who he is and what he brought to Burning Man. 2019, the theme for the event this year was metamorphosis. That really describes the next layer of the process, which was not to forget him, not to over-reference him, but to look to the future and recognize that we need to set the culture up and the organization up so that it goes on beyond us. That's my personal lesson. I better get to work because there's things that I intend to leave behind better than I found it in the Burning Man culture. That was a wake-up call. I've always been impressed by your calm, even in the most trying situations. How did you get that calm? Is that learned or is that hereditary? On the one hand, I would say it would be from my parents, but both of them are known for their strong personalities. I really don't know where I got it from, but I do know that when I got the call that Larry had had a stroke and I was in France, I knew that I had to be the one that was going to be calm and was going to be focused. I knew that everything was about to change. He was the yin to my yang often. He would have strong opinions about things, and I would be the one to sort of calm him down and point in a particular direction. Burning Man actually taught me to be strong in the face of a storm. You've seen a lot of this enlightened community at scale. This podcast is for marketers and entrepreneurs. What lessons have you learned from looking at that enlightened community at scale that might be applicable to help them? We need to be more playful. We need to be innovative. We need to allow more big ideas to the surface, and we need to help others manifest them, giving people the opportunity to think differently, to be themselves. If you could, what advice would you give yourself in 1995 when you first heard about Burning Man for the first time? When I first went to Burning Man, I was afraid. I was fascinated, but I was afraid to play. And I remember observing. Once I got through that, I thought, I'm never going to be an observer again. I want to be a participant, and I want to pick something up, and I want to play, and I want to learn. So as we wrap up, we always give a shout out to the person who's the most analytical person, you know, that math part of the equation, and to the person who's the showman, or the showwoman, who's just the magician. If you had to pick two people, who would be your favorite for the mathematician? Paul Romer's article, the Nobel Prize winning economist about Burning Man, really gave me some insight about Burning Man around culture and economy. So magician. I probably can guess who you're going to say. Well, it would have been Larry Harvey. I figured that yes. would be what it is, but I had to ask the question. That's the magician. Marion, you have been entrusted with a very special culture. It's come a long way since the summer solstice of 1986. I'm certain you and your teammates will continue that evolution, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Bob. It was great to be here. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Marion. One, when looking at culture, be descriptive, not proscriptive. It's how Larry Harvey first came up with the 10 principles that drove Burning Man's success and continued growth. Two, communal efforts can transcend our differences. At Burning Man, Marion says a common goal and community spirit can forge unexpected relationships. Three, be a participant, 
not an observer. After Marion first experienced Burning Man, she volunteered to help it succeed. This is a part of the Burning Man culture for everyone involved. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.